Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton has a $23 million hole in the budget due to combating the COVID-19 virus. We'll talk about how that's impacting the city. Employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg will join us to talk about the CERB issues people are facing these days. And the Ontario government says schools will not be opening May 4th. We'll talk about how the boards of education are handling that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Joining us to get a, a, an overview as to how the city is handling this right now and the implications it's having on staff and, and, and everybody else who's involved in trying to battle this pandemic. Uh, Michael Sanderson, paramedic chief, of course, with the city of Hamilton. Michael, good morning. How are you today? I'm great, Bill. Thank you very much. Good to have you with us once again. Uh, how are you guys holding it, first of all? And let me talk about your department, first of all. Uh, there's a great deal of stress uh, on first responders in situations like this. And as you and I talked about just the other day, uh, it, uh, it puts a lot of stress on a very stressful job to begin with right now. Uh, as, as the manager of this department, I mean, you've got concerns about staffing levels, about the performance of your staff, about uh, what they're doing, about burnout. There's an awful lot that goes on in, in a situation like this, isn't there? Uh, there's an awful lot that goes on. I have to say our, our staff are really stepping up to the challenges that they're faced with, uh, in particular supporting each other in the process. Our peer support team activities are continuing as we have paramedics who are placed into self-isolation as a result of uh, contact with COVID patients or as a result of travel. It's challenging for self-isolation, I think, in any situation uh, for our paramedics when they're concerned about whether they're going to end up catching COVID because uh, they deal with it on a, on a regular basis. Our, our peer support team has been supporting them uh, paramedics have been out for each other uh, and, and we'll continue to do that uh, but it is a fearful time uh, as it is for any healthcare frontline worker or any frontline worker for that matter uh, as we move through and, and really trying to deal with an invisible thing that, that we really don't know where it is and, and how we're going to do it uh, there, there's so much hand washing and so much alcohol hand rub uh, it's very challenging as we move through these processes. How do you uh I wanted to ask you about where you guys are right now. I mean, you just got through the budget cycle. Not just it seems like it was a, a lifetime ago, but it was only a few weeks ago the, the city council finally passed the budget, uh, and there was some concerns about the staffing levels, of course, with paramedics at that time, uh, and the addition of extra vehicles and things of this nature. Is is that kind of work still progressing, or is everything on hold until this thing gets dealt with? Uh, that work is still progressing. Council approved uh, the addition of one ambulance for us 24-7 yep. uh, to deal with call volume pressures and response time performance. Uh, we're moving forward on that in terms of the activity. Uh, we are fully staffed right now. Uh, we're continuing our recruitment for, for new staff. Uh, we actually have, uh, coming in tomorrow, new recruits. Uh, we've had to modify our orientation program to make sure that we have self-distancing. Uh, we're doing some of it by remote, uh, using the Zoom processes and WebEx processes. Uh, a lot of online studying, but but we have to move forward in terms of getting ourselves ready because we know the summertime is coming up and, and all the normal challenges that come with uh, trying to make sure your staff have vacation, uh, the time for a break, uh, and, and of course our, our staff to relieve them in doing that process. Is uh, How is recruitment? Is that difficult? I know there was a time years ago, and I'm going back quite a few years now, uh, when there was a, a real problem trying to actually find people and there was a problem with training, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is really a, a combination of, of municipal and, and, I guess, provincial responsibilities. Has all that stuff been ironed out now, Michael? 
It's very much ironed out. We, we start our recruitment process. We do one recruitment process a year. We had about 650 applications uh, in December. Uh, we filtered that 650 applications down through the written examination, then through a multi-mini interview process, uh, then through uh, other application activities, uh, and then through final interviews. And uh, we've offered positions to 48 uh, part-time staff, some of whom will become full-time as soon as they end up joining the service. And uh, that's obviously going to take some of the pressure off of some of the folks that have been there for quite some time. Hamilton, in many ways, is is unique, and I, I'm sure every municipality uh, has their own, you know, aspects of, of first responder delivery. But as as we've talked about with you and with uh, with Mario Pastorello, of course, from uh, uh, the paramedics. Uh, this is an older population here, and with that, of course, there's a possibility of more call volume with it, that you might see in other municipalities. It's a it's a rather arduous work to work in this community, which is, I guess, another reason why we're so proud of the work that the, your staff do actually perform on a daily basis. Yeah, I'm glad you appreciate that, Bill. The uh, the reality is we, we do have an aging population. We have socioeconomic issues. Uh, we have call volume differentials based upon neighbourhoods. It's been well addressed in the Code Red reports in terms of uh, stuff coming out of the spectator, and, and I think that they've done a nice job of representing that. But we do have disparities across our population, uh, and uh, all of those contribute to, to changing call volumes. Uh, as we're dealing with the homeless, we're doing, dealing with drugs and addictions, mental health issues, uh, as well as the elderly uh, which are an increasing population. I think Hamilton's a very attractive location for seniors who are coming here from other jurisdictions, uh, particularly as they're, as they're selling houses, for example, in Toronto when coming into the Hamilton market. Uh, that certainly does create pressures on us in terms of health care resources, but uh, it, it's great to have them coming into the city. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Uh, this is such an attractive place, and with that, uh, the increasing of, of the uh, the people, I guess, of the plus sixty, plus seventy cases in some situations like that. Uh, one of the reasons that, that we're attractive, I guess, is because we offer those sorts of services, and and uh, so it's it's great to see that sort of thing happening. But it does put an awful lot of pressure on uh, on paramedics and and first responders in situations like this. You touched on something else though that I, I wanted to bring up, and I'm glad you did. Uh, we seem to, f- and rightly focusing on COVID-19 right now and, and the pressure that that's creating on the city and on first responders. But, uh, but you touched on drug addiction and the opioid crisis, which is still very much uh, there. And, uh, it's, it's something that kind of got pushed off to the side as far as our mindsets are concerned. But, uh, but your staff are dealing with that as well as everything else here. Yeah, we are. And uh, the normal calls, just as with police and fire, our normal call volumes continue to happen. Uh, we still have a drugs and addiction problem in the city. I have to say that uh, the opioid calls have decreased uh, in terms of the activity. And I think that's because the illicit drug market, uh, it's very difficult for people to be out uh with the social distancing requirements and mm-hmm. uh, those types of activities. So uh, not as much in the opioid, but it is still a problem. Uh, and it's going to continue to be a problem in the society after COVID's gone. Uh, so we continue to have to deal with that, uh, and and I think our paramedics and other first responders deal with that in a particularly good manner. Uh, we're working very closely with St. Joseph's Healthcare in terms of alternative destination protocols for some in the drugs and addiction process, uh, and and that's been working out very well as an addition for us in terms of mitigating or taking patients away from the emergency department uh, that that could safely go to another destination. Michael, when, talk, talk to us about offloading, which has been a problem, and I, I don't want to get into the Code Zero stuff. I think everybody's familiar with that right now. But given the call volumes you're having right now and the concerns about COVID, if a determination is made uh, by one of uh, your staff members that such and such a patient has to be transported to hospital for you know what may well be COVID-19, uh, 
is is there an express purpose here? Is there a, a fast way for these people to be uh, accepted into the hospital so you guys can get back out onto the road? It's been a concern in the past, and we're expecting a huge load here that coming into the emergency rooms in some hospitals. And, and uh, obviously you don't want to be stuck there, as we have seen in the past, with waiting and waiting and waiting, and those people can actually get triaged and, and maybe even get accepted into the hospital. Well, I think in terms of the capacity planning for, for all of our hospitals in the city, uh, one of the things that has happened is additional spaces have been created. Uh, alternative level of care patients have been discharged. The hospitals have done a tremendous job in terms of making sure they have capacity. Uh, really impressive to see how all that has happened. Uh, as a result of that, our actual offload delays on arrival at the hospital have plummeted. Uh, and I use the term plummeted because they have gone down that significantly. We're averaging about five to six hours a day in terms of offload delays now, where we were at 90 hours a day. So uh, very, very happy with that process, that level of activity. Uh, what that means in terms of COVID patients is they are received fairly quickly. We do a pre-notification to the hospitals uh, prior to arrival uh, that they're received in a planned way. We went through exercises back in March to make sure that all of our staff and all of the hospital staff knew what the process would be on arrival because there is that potential for contamination and that's working out very smoothly in the process. So uh, I have to say as we go through this one crisis, I don't have the the secondary crisis of ambulance offload delays creating another issue, and that's certainly a relief for everybody in the system. It's, uh, uh, by the way, I think it's a tribute to the hospitals and to yourself and the coordination uh, that has gone on to this. When we saw this coming, uh, there was some concern there about the call volumes. There was concern about the number of people that were going to be showing up at the hospitals themselves, at the, whether it's in ER or, of course, through admission uh, through your staff. Uh, and I don't want to get a false sense of security here, but the numbers I saw earlier this week, Michael, indicate that uh, we're nowhere near the capacity that they were afraid we were going to reach and, and maybe in some cases exceed. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to say, hey, everything's fine now. But, uh, again, that, that pre-planning that you did and the hospitals did to make that accommodation uh, for those bumps in numbers, if, in fact, they start to happen, have made, the, I think, the process a lot easier for everybody. Well, I think you're right, Bill, and, and pre-planning is really what it is about. Uh, all emergency services, and I think all hospitals uh, do that on a regular basis. Uh, you plan for the worst potential, and, and you manage the activities uh, aggressively as you can. Uh, but, but I think we're still going to have to continue. I think social distancing has had a huge impact. Public health has done a great job. I think the province has done a good job of messaging uh, to the public about what they need to do in terms of social isolation, uh, keeping your distance from others, uh, shutting down non-essential business which I know is a very, very difficult process for uh, individual businesses that are deemed non-essential. Uh, it's great to see the restaurant businesses being able to maintain takeout, and, and hopefully people are taking advantage of that in terms of local businesses. Uh, very challenging financially. I think the fallouts from this are, are going to be significant over the coming year. Uh, but, but those measures are working, I think, in terms of bending the curve, and, and that's an important part for us. Has there been any concern, and talking at the management level now uh, with the city about uh, about staffing levels, uh, we have not laid anybody off, not that I'm aware of anyway, that in any of the departments everybody is still being paid, everybody is still doing some kind of work, even though it may not be the sort of work they did pre-COVID in situations like this. Uh, but we've heard talk about the hit this is having on the budget right now. And, and let's face it, at some point we're going to have to deal with that. Is, is the attitude, is, the, is the, the decision at this point, Michael, simply to say, look, it, let's just do what we need to do and we'll worry about the price tag later on? 
I think that's probably right. Uh, we're always cautious about what we're spending money on. We want to make sure that we're spending it on the right thing, to, uh, whether you're in a crisis or not in a crisis. Uh, fundamentally, some of the costs for individual items have skyrocketed. Uh, if I'm looking at N95 masks, which are absolutely impossible to get right now, uh, they've gone from uh, what a normal price would have been at 50 cents a mask up to $5 a mask. So uh, we see that kind of an escalation in, in terms of cost and activities, uh, having to find alternative processes uh, to make sure our paramedics are safe and the patients are safe. And I think that's right across the entire city, setting up uh, temporary shelters at First Ontario Centre, uh, dealing with uh, another temporary shelter for uh, homeless patients or homeless individuals who are screened positive for COVID at the Bonetto Centre. A variety of things happening in the city, as well as, as you say, alternative processes, uh, staff deployment in terms of working for home. Uh, unfortunately, our paramedics can't work from home, but many people in the city can. Uh, and then they're still maintaining productivity in that process. So I think it's going to be very challenging and, and the budgets are going to be difficult. Uh, but at the same time, we're not focusing on what we're not spending. We're just making sure we're focusing on spending money on the right issues. We heard the Prime Minister yesterday saying that, look, at you know, again, to go back to that, that theme we've talked about here, that we're not out of the woods yet, and this is still going to be going on for quite some time. Uh, and uh, they're talking possibly June, maybe into the summertime right now. Uh, which means that uh, I'm not so sure if the status quo is going to be maintained. There could be some easing of some of these uh, restrictions, et cetera. But that means that as far as you and your staff are concerned, uh, you've got to make sure that the supply chain is there for equipment, uh, whether it's face masks or anything else, uh, in the uh, coming months now, not just the coming weeks, I guess. Are you confident that that supply chain is going to be maintained and you're going to have the equipment you need for your staff? I'm fairly confident we'll be maintained. Uh, I'm also cautious about how well we'll be able to maintain it. I think government is going through uh, some of the specialty items, uh, the masks, uh, the, the clear transparent face masks that we end up using, uh, the, the, the N95 mask, processes for recycling, and then I think that's challenging in terms of looking at that. Uh, but it has to be done safely, effectively, and efficiently, and uh, if you can utilize things the way that they were originally designed, I think that's the better alternative. Uh, uh, we've uh, utilized and gone to, I believe we've already talked about it, the North 7700 masks, which are a reusable mask with mm-hmm. filter pucks on them. And, and that's really changed, first of all, the appearance of our paramedics in terms of what they're looking at uh, or looking like when they're, when they're presenting. Uh, changes uh, how well you can hear them in terms of their voice. Uh, but it creates a reusable system where we're not... Uh, reliant on individual N95 masks being disposed of after each call. So uh, we're looking at those strategies as more expensive, but I think it's more sustainable in the long run. It's interesting. I'm not going to suggest there's a silver lining here, but uh, one of the, I think the good news stories here is how all of a sudden a number of people in the in the community, uh, in the business community and in the manufacturing community have stepped up and said, look, we can help that. In other words, we're creating a supply chain right here in Canada, which we didn't do very well before this whole thing. Uh, and that's that's gratifying, I think, because we don't know when this is going to come back, do we? No, we don't know when it's going to come back, and we keep on hearing the predictions about cycles of it, uh, usually decreasing cycles as it kind of bounces up and down, and, and you start to get a resurgence, and it gets beat back in the process. Look forward to end up finding immunizations for it, uh, and I think that will probably happen from reading all the literature. Uh, but I'm also very grateful for the people in the community that have donated personal protective equipment. Uh, there's been a variety of businesses that had, had equipment for various reasons, uh, N95 masks, surgical masks, gloves, gowns, uh, coming from the college, coming from different individual businesses. Uh, and they've been very uh, gracious in, in donating that to make sure that the frontline responders at the hospitals, uh, police, fire, EMS, all have those pieces of equipment uh, that we can utilize much more effectively right now. 
Well, I guess uh, you have to take it one day at a time because we just don't know what's going to be happening. The numbers are starting to look a little bit encouraging, but uh, we obviously have to be diligent about this and keep on going. Uh, Michael, as I told you the other day, please extend uh, our gratitude to everybody in staff, and, and not just with your department, but everybody at the city who was uh, sticking their nose out there right on the front lines to make sure that we're safe and that we've got everything we need. And uh, in case we have to make that call, that, that, that your paramedics are there as well. Thanks for this, and uh, stay healthy. Thank you very much, Bill. Take care. Michael Sanderson, of course, paramedic chief for the city of Hamilton, who's involved in, in many of the discussions that are going on, as we've talked about the this uh, subset, I guess, of city council and, of course, some of the staff members, including Paul Johnson, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, and, of course, Mayor Fred Eisenberger and others. Uh, that, uh, that talk on a daily basis about, okay, where are we right now? What do we need to do? How are things going so far? And we, we need to have those sorts of updates, uh, I think, to create that, that sense of confidence that we have here in the community. And so far, so good. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a becoming a weekly feature because obviously employment and holding on to a job and wondering what to do if you can't hold on to your job are going to be uh, essential parts of the conversation over the next little while, especially since it looks like uh, we're not getting out of this thing anytime soon. Although there is a push, as we've heard in some areas, to try to quote-unquote open up the economy again, uh, which will be easier said than done when we talk to some of our financial experts. So uh, if you've been laid off, if you're without a job right now, it could be some time. Uh, before you actually find employment again. Uh, hopefully that's not going to be the case, but I mean, that's could, could be the reality for an awful lot of folks. So we're pleased as we will uh, just about every week, I guess, until uh, we get out of the hole here. We welcome our friend uh, Andrew Goldberg back. Uh, Andrew, of course, is an employment lawyer and associate at Semfiru Tumarkin, LLP. Uh, and uh, first of all, Andrew, welcome back. Great to have you with us again today. Uh, thanks, Bill. Good morning. I'm also going to give our listeners an opportunity if they've got some questions perhaps about uh, uh, the CERB uh, program that's gone out here and some other things that are going on. So if uh, anybody just wants to jump in here for a second and ask Andrew a question about employment and uh, some of the situations that you may find yourself in these days, uh, you can call us at 905-645-3221, star 9900, or reach me by email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and we'll see if we can get some answers for you. Uh, when we talked about this last week, the, the program, uh, Andrew, was relatively new. The CERB program was still relatively new, and it, it was almost uh, kind of like a work in progress, I guess, because almost on a daily basis we got some updates from the Prime Minister on how things were rolling out and, and how people are going to be able to apply for this. Uh, the numbers here are just remarkable now. I, I'm, I'm hearing like 6 million people have filed claims by Sunday uh, for these uh, the monies that are going to be available. Uh, have any updates that you've seen now as, as you've studied the program, and uh, is, it, is, it, is it touching all the bases that it's supposed to touch? Well, uh, as we discussed last time, it's still a work in progress. Um, it, it definitely has been rolled out. I know I've, I've had a chance to speak to many people with many questions. I understand that payments have been made. Um, and individuals, a lot of individuals are being covered by the CERB benefit currently, but there are still some people, uh, as we discussed last week, for instance, people who had a reduction in pay but not an entire elimination in pay that would not yet qualify for CERB. So I think the government will still look to expand it a bit, hopefully, uh, but we'll have to see what happens in the coming weeks. What about the, uh, you mentioned last week about self-employed, and there were some concerns about that, about whether or not they were going to be able to qualify for this, and if they're, and just, and how they fit into this program. Okay, and so self-employed individuals can apply for the CERB benefit. Uh, That is the fundamental difference between CERB and EI. Mm-hmm. Uh, EI, if, if, well, there are some instances where if you're self-employed, you can qualify for EI, but I won't get into that now. Most often, you do not. Um, so the CERB benefit does 
uh, apply to people who are employed through self-employment, the key is they just have to have no income due to COVID-19. And in, in that case, they can apply for the CERB benefit. But that's an argument I guess everybody could make, can't they? I mean, let's face it, if the businesses are shut down, uh, by definition, I guess, you're, you're probably not going to be able to do business with an awful lot of people because there's nobody there. I mean, I suppose that is the case, but at the end of the day, it'll really come down to the aftermath, I think, more than anything. like, What is the CRA going to come at people to substantiate um, that they had income prior to? You know, to qualify for CERB, you need to have made at least $5,000 for 2019 or in the 12 months prior uh, to the application for the CERB benefit. So obviously, there will be some kind of uh, structure in place for individuals to substantiate down the line that they did earn 5000 um, that's obviously going to be interesting maybe for people that don't uh, report their income properly. If you're self-employed and you don't report your income, uh, that could be problematic for sure. If you now want to apply for the SERB benefit, but you can't show $5,000 in income over the last year, that could be trouble, right? But to your point, I mean, as long as at some point you were earning income in the last year of $5,000 and now you do not because of COVID, um, I, I guess the CRA would have to look at your revenue streams and, and pinpoint the area in time that such an individual stopped earning money. If it was around March or April or what have you, that could be enough to justify uh, the, the application for the SERB benefit. I guess if anybody's got concerns like that, maybe the, the one thing they can kind of hang their hat on here is that I, I got the impression uh, that, uh, that the government's basically going to err on the side of caution. In other words, if you apply, you're going to get the money more often than not, unless it's blatantly, no, you just don't do that. And, and if, if, you know, if you're getting too much or if you may be getting money that you probably didn't really qualify for, uh, they'll probably catch up with you later. The onus is, is really right on the, the applicant right now, isn't it, to see, first of all, to apply and, and to second of all, it, to, to, uh, you know, to get the money going. But it's not going to be as, as restrictive sometimes as trying to capture EI is it no definitely not ei is a, a stringent application process uh the ceo you're 100 right the crb benefit uh the government is going to err on the side of caution 100 correct if you attest to the fact that you qualify you will get the money uh what the issue is is down the line um the cra will reconcile things they will look into it further and determine whether individuals who attested that they qualified and did receive the money should those individuals actually have uh, received such money. So a lot of people um, believe they qualify for CERB. So something we've seen a lot of lately is people should keep in mind, your listeners should keep in mind that if you unilaterally decide to leave your job, if you quit your job, uh, even if there's a good reason, that person will not qualify to get the CERB benefit. So it's only if you're terminated from your position or put on a layoff Mm -hmm. um, that you can qualify. So uh, something we've been hearing a lot of lately is that individuals that I speak to, their accountants or their financial advisors uh, are telling them, oh, just apply to serve. Everyone qualifies. Everyone gets it. Um, I don't know sometimes if these individuals are, are well informed with what's going on with the CERB. But if you decide to quit your job because you say, you know, screw this, I want to be home with my kids and I... I'll worry about work in six months' time or eight months' time or what, what have you, uh, that you, you may not qualify for the CRB benefit. I think the interesting part is what happens down the line. I mean, you know, I read through this stuff every week, multiple times a week. It changes all the time. We talk about it all the time. 
And it's easy to make a mistake and think that you qualify when you don't, right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, uh, what the CRA does with people who make kind of a genuine mistake and they think they qualify for CRB and for kind of a valid reason for, you know, maybe a miscommunication, a misunderstanding of, of the um, legislation, you apply, but you don't qualify. And then there could be other people who are working right now, actively making money and say, you know, uh, forget it. Let's just apply anyway. I know I don't get CERB. It's very clear I don't get CERB, but I'm going to apply anyway, get the two grand. And if I have to pay it back later, I'll just pay it back later. And I'm curious to see if those people will be penalized kind of more than people who make a genuine more of a genuine mistake in, in attesting to the fact that they qualify for CERB. So I think that'll be possible. Um, and maybe beyond paying back the amounts, there could be fines or penalties handed out to people as well who kind of flagrantly violate uh, the CERB attestation uh, page. Uh, with the employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg uh, talking about, uh, well, the predicament a lot of folks are going to find us in. I just, I'm looking at the economic outlook for the next little while, Andrew, and I'm sure you've read these things too, and it's it's pretty dire when you start talking about what's going to look like four, five, six months down the road. And a lot of people are using the recession word. Some even say we could go into a depression. This They will pretty much all agree on the fact that this seems to be the worst financial situation we've been in since the Great Depression in 1929. But I, I want to go back about 10 years because we, many of us do remember that recession and the impact that it had on unemployment for an awful lot of people. And in some cases, there were some people that held on to their jobs, but they had to sit down and have some sort of an agreement with their employer to say, look, it, you know what, revenues are down, we're in a situation here. Uh, you're going to have to give this up or give that up, or you're going to have to work for less pay, or we're going to have to reduce your benefits or your pension contributions, whatever the case might be. Uh, I don't know for a fact that anybody's had that discussion with their employer yet, but it may well be on the horizon because we saw it happen 10 years ago. What what do you do in a situation like that? Do you do you try to bargain with the employer? Do you simply say, no, look, if this is the agreement we had and stick to your guns and, and maybe, like you say, we're getting laid off or whatever the case might be? Uh, where, where, where are you? What are your options? What are your, your responsibilities in a situation like that? Well, that's a tremendous question, and that's something that we see all the time, so I can tell you firsthand um, that's already happening uh, okay. on a widespread level. Um, so at, at law, you're protected from unilateral changes by the employer to the fundamental terms of your contract. So at law, if the employer says, hey, uh, John Smith, I know you made $80,000 a year last year and you made $80,000 a year for three years, but we're going to need to cut your pay now to $40,000 per year. Times are tough. Employees in that situation, John Smith in that situation, can treat that as a termination. They could say, well, you constructively dismissed me. I didn't agree to these changes to my contract, right? So this is happening very often where employers are saying, listen, I can't afford to pay you right now. Um, I need you to take a 20% cut or 25% cut or 30% cut. And people in that situation can treat their employment as being terminated. And they're then entitled to a severance package. That said, a lot of people are hesitant to engage that because, you know, even though I could tell them, okay, you know, you're, you have legal rights, you, you know, there's legal recourse to be had here um, with how kind of dire the economy is right now, people want to keep their job, notwithstanding the fact that they, you know, are technically constructively dismissed. Um, so something you can do, you know, it's really up to the individual. If, if you're as an individual are prepared to accept it, um, that's, that's on you. But you do have legal rights. You do not have to accept it. 
Uh, something that you can do as well if you want to negotiate is, you know, make sure that if an employer tries to cut your wages or cut your benefits or whatever, that you respond back in writing and, you know, indicate that the understanding is that this is a temporary, that this is not something that they have the right to do going forward. So that if the economy bounces back in four months, six months, whatever, and the employer says, well, you know, you agreed that your salary is now 30% less than it used to be, um, you can go back and say, no, 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 that was not the agreement. The agreement was we'll do this temporarily um, during the, you know, the harsh times that the company's facing, and we'll reassess this every two months going forward or something like that. So you, you definitely want to put in writing, you know, your understanding of the agreement so that it's not something that can persist indefinitely into the future. You don't want to give your rights away forever, right? So that's something we do see very, very, very frequently right now. Well, would you even go to the extent of, of, for instance, a contractual situation where you say, okay, here are the the stipulations, here are the the parameters. Uh, In other words, I'll do this for a year or agree to do it for a year, whatever the case might be. Uh, Because, I mean, I I remember out of that last recession again, some people that went through this whole process. And, uh, you know, when we started to come out of it, which took a while, obviously, uh, oftentimes employees would just say, look, I'm still in a rough way here. I, I, I can't afford to pay you what you were making before. So that, that reduced salary becomes the new normal, and, and uh, people don't want to get boxed in like that. Well, if you don't want to get boxed in like that, then you can treat it as a termination. I mean, no employer has the right to unilaterally reduce um, your salary at, you know, at a fundamental level unless for some reason you signed a contract that gave the employer the right to change your salary, but it's very rare I ever see that at least reduce the salary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you're right. I mean, you don't necessarily have to have a formal contract. It would be wise to speak to a lawyer uh, to discuss kind of the more finer points about what you want to say and not say. But I think the key more to anything is to get it in writing. Don't do it simply verbally. Uh, You know, have something in writing that you can go back to that demonstrates, you know, the parties had an understanding of, you know, what the cut was going to be and for how long. There's also you know, ways to work around it. One is you could negotiate a deferral as opposed to a reduction. So rather than say, okay, we're going to cut your salary by 20% and that's it. You you know, you can maybe agree with the employer. Okay. You know, I'll cut my salary by 20%, but by the end of, you know, 2020, I expect that this money is paid back to me or something like that. Once things bounce back and if things aren't looking good, we can revisit it at that time or something I've seen recently as well as an individual uh, in sales, who has got a combination of base salary and commission, that individual agreed to reduce their base salary, but in turn asked to raise their commission. And now that's not going to be super relevant for that person right now because they're not selling a lot right now. But when mm-hmm. times bounce back, they can earn more on their commission and kind of make up for the loss of base salary. But it'll be up to that individual to earn more. So it's kind of a win-win for both parties. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of ways that it could shake out, but the the moral of the story is, the employer does not have a unilateral right to do this almost, you know, the majority, if not all of the time. And if people are concerned about that, they can treat that as a termination. Um, and, and that's something they can speak to a lawyer about for sure. A uh, variation on that same theme uh, is, is when employees are asked to do work unpaid days. Uh, and again, the, the, you know, the, the context of that, usually the argument that the employer will make is, look at, uh, I can lay five people off here or you can all make less or work like maybe six days, seven days uh, without pay over the course of a year, whatever the case might be. I guess it varies. And it did happen an awful lot back in the uh, in the 09-08 recession. And uh, did you look at that as, as possible termination too? Or do you, I mean, where do you draw the line in situations like that? 
I mean, it certainly depends. If someone's paid by the hour um, and they're not getting paid for a day, the analysis is quite similar. I mean, if they're paid a salary uh, to the, so that every two weeks they, they historically earned the same uh, revenue, the same income on their pay stub, um, but now they aren't getting paid for a day, so that amount is reduced proportionally. So, you know, if they work 10 days in a week um, and were paid for 10 days in a week, and now they're paid for nine of the 10 days, really that's just a reduction in salaries. It's kind of the exact same thing, right? Um, it really just depends on how you're getting paid, how often, if it's salary or hourly. But um, it's mostly the same analysis. If you're not getting paid for work that you're doing or you're getting paid less than you agree to for work that you're doing, uh, very often you can treat that as a termination depending on the amount of the cut and things of that nature. So it's really just up to the individual what they want to do, if they want to kind of work it out with the employer so they can keep their job or they want to treat their job as being terminated and try to pursue a severance. Uh, you know, it's going to be an individualistic analysis and everyone's going to want different things in this process. It's it's a gamble though to make that kind of a decision, especially with these uh, you know shaky economic times. Because yeah, you might just say, okay, that's it. You know, I've been terminated. I'll, I'll take that. And and maybe you can apply in a situation like this for the SERB benefit. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, that doesn't guarantee you're going to have a job at the end of this, does it? No, it doesn't. And you know, so it it is a gamble, and that's what we're seeing all the time. I mean, it's hard right now because people are worried. So there's people that I speak to and I say, listen, you have rights, you have legal recourse, you can do A, B, or C. And those people, a lot of them are saying, uh, you know, I, I think I know that um, they can't legally really do what they're doing, but I don't want to lose 80% of the income that, that I now have or my previous income or 75% or 70 or what have you. And in that situation, Maybe that person doesn't pursue their severance, but it would still be wise to speak with the lawyer and ensure that you're communicating the right things to preserve your rights going forward. You don't want employers to take advantage of COVID and the situation that we're facing by changing your rights. And, and that's what's happening often, too, is employers are using, I'm not saying all employers, I'm not saying that this is very, very frequent, but a lot of employers are using COVID as kind of an opportunity to do things that they've wanted to do previously that, you know, they couldn't get away with doing, you know, if they wanted to fire certain people, but they didn't want to pay their severance, if they wanted to, you know, impose a pay reduction, but they knew they couldn't do that. Now under like the auspice of COVID, they're just kind of bucketing everything into COVID and saying, well, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing the other, right? So I think it, it's very situational and uh, it's very important for me as an employment lawyer to understand the person's individual circumstance and kind of what led up to you know, the layoff, the pay reduction, the termination or what have you. Well, these are uncharted waters for an awful lot of us and, uh, and very tentative times, which is why guys like you are so busy, I guess, Andrew. Always appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, anybody else has questions, of course, you can give me a, a shout uh, here at uh, the radio station. Of course, email bkelly 900 chmlcom and we'll fire them off to Andrew. Or you can get a hold of him at uh, Semfru to Mark and LLP and uh, listen for the show, of course, on Saturdays and Sundays here on CHML. Uh, stay healthy, Andrew. We'll talk again in a few days, okay? All right. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. Andrew Goldberg, of course, from uh, uh, San Fierro to Mark and uh, Employment Lawyers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. School is not going back on May the 4th. Uh, that was a date that uh, the Premier had thrown out there a little while ago. 
uh, to reevaluate the situation. Well, he talked about this yesterday and uh, finally suggested that, look, it's not going to happen May the 4th. As a matter of fact, they're not sure when school is going to go back which, of course, means more online learning for an awful lot of students, those that are doing well in that, congratulations. Uh, those that are struggling, well, hopefully there's going to be some assistance for you. But what's going to happen to the school year, and what kind of pressure is this putting on school boards who are obviously trying to plan and decide exactly what's going to be happening here? Well, joining us to talk about this is Manny Figueroa, who is the Director of Education for the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Manny, first of all, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, thank you for having me on, Bill. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I hope you are doing well uh, these days. Obviously, we're concerned about uh, everybody's health in situations like this, and uh, which is one of the reasons why we're in this circumstance. How do you deal with this on a, on a daily basis, Manny, as, as we try to move on here? I remember having the discussion with you a few weeks ago about, about moving into this online learning for an awful lot of the students, which was a huge adjustment, of course, for the board and for you. Uh, we don't know when this is going to end now, do we? Yeah, no, we, we don't know when it's going to end, and, and uh, our team has been planning uh, like end of mine. I've asked my team to think we need to plan as if this we're going to be in this till the end of the school year. So when you ask, how do you plan for this, it, it, it's a great question. I always like to use models to frame our thinking and planning, but a model I've been using is around sort of that, you know, phases of crisis management. And when the news came to us March 12th, that we're going to be closed for uh, two weeks after March break, there's sort of this immediate response thinking, wow, what do we need to do right now? So those first two weeks after, our, our priority was to get educators trained on, uh, on, on, these lear- on digital platforms, and many of our educators already use them. It, you know, we've talked about blended learning, physical and digital. So we've had a huge uptake on our, on our digital platforms, Microsoft Teams, and, and um, we, we call the hub. You've heard the ministry talk about Brightspace, it's mm-hmm. a learning management system that all boards have, and we've been promoting it for, for years. And then the second thing we had to really focus on those first two weeks was to gather information, like how many families need devices, might not have Internet access, and then work out a plan for that. So our data told us that we needed about 5,500 devices to redeploy, and that's what we're working on this week. And I just want to reiterate that some people, it's not just people who don't have them. It could be a family who now says, ah, I have four children at home and I'm working at home and, and is there any way to get a couple more devices? So five of us aren't sharing one device. So, um, so that's been the focus the first two weeks. And, and then this week, um, sorry, last week, then it shifted from student-directed learning to teacher-directed. So our teachers are doing their best. We're not asking for perfection. And, and, and uh, as they're shifting, many of them already use digital platforms and virtual learning others are just getting on board and and that's okay but i gotta tell you i'm really proud of the of the response from our teachers they to collect the data in every school we had over fifty thousand kids we collected the data on uh, on almost forty six thousand students in one week that's how vast the outreach was I'm glad you brought that up because for those that may not have students who are in the system currently, uh, I don't want them to get the impression that during this whole situation here, teachers are just sitting at home doing nothing. Uh, they're still teaching. I mean, they're still engaged with the students. They are, and, and it ranges. I, and I know it ranges. I've heard some parents say to me, boy, I thought the ministry said it was, you know, if my elementary student was only supposed to be about five hours a week of work. I, I'm seeing a lot more. And others are saying, hey, I, I've only heard a few times. That's because some of the educators are still getting trained. Uh, um, like in the last, in the first week, we had uh, almost 2,000 teachers being trained virtually on our platform. So 
there is a range, and, and I got to commend people this week. I, I'm calling you from Lake Avenue School today. This mm-hmm. week, our school leaders and staff they're uh, now getting all the devices, uh, the iPads, which we already had in schools because our board had a model of providing uh, them. So those kits have been cleaned by our caretakers. They've been re-imaged by our uh, IT staff. And right now we have staff practicing physical distancing because I had to come in, clean my hands, grab the gloves, and I walked into Lake Avenue Library, and they have centers that are set up about three meters away, and you have your laptop, and you've got your spreadsheet, you've got student names that the teachers have collected, and you're inputting the serial number for each device. You're labeling it in a plastic bag. And then tomorrow and Friday, uh, Friday parents will either do curbside pickup um, they'll have a designated time to come in or they can walk by and then there'll be tables set up uh, with, a, again, having to practice that physical distancing and gloves and hand sanitizer. So huge logistics, but I have to tell you, I'm really proud of, of how people have stepped up um, to make sure that we can do the best we can under these conditions. Manny, I'm glad you told me that where you are right now at Lake Avenue School, which kind of reminded me. That's, it's a, by the way, a school that does a, some great programs with adult education. Uh, with what's happening with the education system right now, what's the status of those classes and those those adult programs that you've been offering? Are they on hold or are they ongoing? No, those adult programs continue to go. At uh, as you know, we have our adult learning is at um, continuing education is at um, Hill Park Center up in yeah, the mountain. Yeah. They're continuing. The government has continued uh, uh, the, the funding through that. And that funding source is, is a federal funding, a different funding source. It's continued. And the good thing about that, a lot of those uh, courses were um, e-learning courses. So those e-learning courses have continued, and some of them haven't missed uh, a beat. So they're still uh, moving ahead, uh, full speed ahead. Good to know, uh, because obviously I know an awful lot of people that have taken advantage of those over the years, and that's 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 key for, especially given the, some of the precarious things that are going on vis-a-vis employment these days, to know that that's still a tool that they can use. We want to talk about uh, the, the e-learning and, and the online stuff that's going on here, and, and I know that was a rather contentious issue during the time of the contract negotiations, it seems like 100 years ago now. Uh, but, uh, you know, people have to understand that e-learning has always been, well, not always, but at least in the last little while, has been part of the curriculum. It's, uh, the, the concern, I think, that a lot of teachers that I talked to at that time uh, said was, that, yeah, there are people that are going to do well at this, not so well, which is why, uh, and to go back to something I think you told us some time ago, uh, there is no substitute for that parent or that teacher-student relationship. I mean, some some people will thrive doing stuff online. Others are still going to need that that other uh, that other binding, uh, I, I guess, uh, relationship between the teacher and the student. You know, Bill, you're right. I have always said that um, learning there needs to be a blended approach to learning, especially in the 21st century. Right, the, in the physical space. Nothing, in my opinion, and from what I've seen, nothing replaces that sort of physical interaction, that face-to-face. But when that, um, but also there's a in 21st century, we should also be incorporating uh, the digital tools so we can continue to, to learn that way. Um, I, I was just thinking about what would have happened if this was, you know, in, in the 1980s uh, or when we didn't have internet. I mean, I think um, schools would be completely shut down. No learning, any shape of learning, would be occurring. But I do agree, this is not ideal for some. It's not ideal for all. Um, so, but but um, I've said to people, what can public education do at a time right now? Yes, it's not viewed as an essential service. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been closed. However, we must show that we're adding value 
to our kids today. And one thing I'm very proud of is that when, when people reached out to find out whether they had tech uh, through the phone calls the teachers did, we, we got parents reached, sharing a lot more than learning the nutrition programs we relied on in schools. They're gone. We need some help. As a result of some of that data coming, we've, we've worked with our partners, Hamilton Food Share, Taste Buds, who gets the majority of the funding that supports schools, um, the Hamilton Bulldogs Foundation, around their funding on nutrition programs. So we've come together with a committee to say, what can we do? We know what we can't do, but what can we do? How do we repurpose some of the funds we all have, try to figure a way to get vouchers for families so they can get the food and nutrition that they need um, because schools have been such a, a, a safety net for, for many. So we're, we're looking at different ways to do what we can um, because we can't continue to dwell on what we can't do right now. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, I want to give a shout-out to Michael Andlar and the Bulldogs. Uh, Michael, of course, uh, another huge donation uh, for food share and uh, understanding that these programs still have to be maintained. Even though the doors may be shut in the schools, uh, the kids still have to eat. And uh, Michael and, uh, and the Bulldogs Foundation have just been outstanding in supporting that program. Yeah, they really have, and I don't know if people realize. Just, I mean, we receive funding, um, geez, on, on, a, on an annual basis. I think like we've... Uh, uh, supporting in how many schools? Like I was just when I meet with them, I see the amount that they give us the hundreds and hundreds of thousands for our nutrition programs. It, it, it's it's been outstanding. So they they're stepping up again in a time of great need. And um, and what, one thing I'm proud of is seeing all the partners come together to think about how do we execute, look at all our resources, and provide service in a different way, but try to meet a need. And and uh, that's why I say we have not only around the learning aspect but we have a responsibility in education around the well-being of our students and i'm seeing that surface again under this uh, time of crisis Manny, we know obviously the schools are not going to reopen on may the 4th uh, we're not sure when they're going to reopen I, I know that people in their minds i mean you know traditionally figure end of june is the end of the school year uh they may not be open by then too i i, I don't know if that's a worst case scenario but i mean is there a plan in place right now to continue the school year, or are we just going to arbitrarily say June 30th is the end uh, when we go back in September, assuming that we will, that uh, we just move on? I mean, what what happens to grades? What happens to graduations in situations like this? Certainly you guys have talked about that. Yeah, we have. We're, we're planning, in our in our minds, we're planning that we won't be back because I need people to think uh, beyond uh, May 4th. The ministry has connected with us um, on a weekly basis, and we were told that this week we will get a further update around the potential extension of the ministerial order. In terms of um, grades, the ministry has been very clear that um, that the learning needs to continue and that um, um, report cards will still be administered in June, and that March 13th in, in elementary schools, that March 13th, that um, teachers are going to continue to do their best to try to give feedback to students through the through the work that they're providing uh, and if students show signs of improvement but that March 13th um, work they had completed to that point could improve if it's in the best interest of the students so they're asked to teachers to use their professional judgment and continue to do the best they can and in secondary uh, um, sort of same same thing as well except we're looking at what you know what will exams look like um, if we're in June because these marks count, and especially for our graduating students. So um, the learning and the activities are still continuing. The assessments and evaluations in secondary still need to continue. But what the final tasks might look like 
uh, the exams might look different. Uh, it might look different than what, what we typically have done, but we can also learn from some of the e-learning courses that we've done and what those final tasks look like uh, to, to be done. So um, that's been the direction of the ministry, and, and, and we hope to hear this week in terms of uh, what the time frame might be looking like, but we're planning until the end of June because we have to be ready. We can't scramble at the end of May and say, oh, now what? In terms of graduations and proms, um, we know that some districts have already canceled events till the end of June. Mm-hmm. We're sort of aligning ourselves with the municipality. The city of Hamilton has, has canceled sort of all gatherings and all events till May 25th. So we're aligning with with our city, but we know that if if they have to be canceled, we know that there's different models to explore. Like, what would a graduation look like in the fall? Um, when I graduated, uh, my graduation was actually the following October challenge that creates is if some kids have moved away um, and uh, makes it a little more challenging. But there are ways to explore what would that graduation look like in the fall and potentially proms that happen in the fall. So we're, we're thinking of that and, and looking at contingencies around that. What about graduating students uh, who are moving on to post-secondary situations like that? This is the time of year where they should be exploring, you know, which institution they want to go to, uh, applications, et cetera, et cetera. Has, has that process going on as per usual, I, it, obviously with a different tone to it because of what's going on? Yeah, the, Bill, that process is going on as usual. Uh, what the uni- universities and college application centers have done have extended sort of the time where we submit midterm marks. As you know, um, universities and colleges look at what were their marks in first semester, and they also look at what has been the midterm marks in second semester. So they've extended that, and our focus this uh, last this week and last week was to reach out to those students for teachers to speak to them to say, hey, this was your mark as of March 13th. If there's any outstanding work or any opportunity to improve it, um, and then by April 23rd to May 1st, boards then have to submit their marks, midterm marks at that point. So the kids won't, will, will still progress, and the Ministry of Education is working closely with the Ministry of Colleges and Universities, and extension of that timeline has been very helpful for school boards. Uh, difficult times, uh, strange times for an awful lot of us. And uh, as I say, even more difficult for people like yourselves, Manny, that are trying to plan and, and do the best thing for the students as well. Let's stay in touch as this uh, evolves over the next little while. I really do appreciate the time today, though, and stay healthy. Yes, you too, Bill. Thank you. Good talking with you. Manny Figueroa, of course, Director of Education at the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.